Welcome to another episode of Talking Flutes. I'm very excited to be talking today to flutist and composer David Heath. Now Dave is a maverick of the flute and music world. He's achieved so much that it's difficult to know where to start. He trained at the Guildhall School of Music with William Bennett and Edward Beckett in classical flute, but had already been playing jazz flute in a band since teenage years. One of Dave's most well-known compositions, Out of the Cool, was written for a fellow student at the Guildhall who wanted to play a piece that made him feel that he was playing jazz. It's certainly one of my favourite pieces for exactly the same reason and has been recorded by many artists. Many other pieces followed in a variety of styles. Dave has written major works for James Galway, Nigel Kennedy and Evelyn Glenny, amongst others. He's also written large-scale orchestral and chamber works. As a flutist, he's recorded a variety of styles as a soloist and orchestral player. He plays on an Albert Cooper flute called Excalibur. Now, Excalibur was the legendary sword of King Arthur attributed with magical powers, and we must talk about the flute later, but for the moment, hello and welcome, Dave. Hi, <laughs> Now, Dave, you and I are contemporaries. Hi. We used to meet up at all the flute auditions. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us about your early career and influences? I'm trying to forget it. Um, what, what would you like to know? Well, what happened after you'd studied at the Guildhall? What happened then? Well, I, I sort of thought I should be an orchestral player because that's what everyone told me I should do. I shouldn't really have listened to anyone else. And that would be my advice to any young players now, is to like, um, you know, follow what they really want to do, not what everyone's telling you what to do. Anyway, I thought, you know, I must be in an orchestra, you know, and all that. And um, so I auditioned for the Halle, and um, I got one of those never-ending trials where, they, you know, you've nearly got the Halle sound, you've almost got the Halle sound. If you just have a bit less vibrato, you know, you'd have the Halle sound. And then finally I found I didn't have the Halle sound at all. And so that was that, which actually I find incredibly depressing and sort of really upset me. But actually it was, you know, once again, it was stupid. I should have just sort of... You know, just thought, oh, it's an orchestral audition, you just get up and do another one. But I thought it was all about how well you played and stuff. I didn't realise, I just didn't understand the politics of these things. It's not straightforward, you know. And um, funny enough, I met someone in um, in Edinburgh, a clarinet player, who was devastated that he hadn't got the job in the SCO. And I told him about this. I said, oh, it's probably nothing to do... I said, you've been on trial for a long time. I know you're a great player. It's probably to do with politics and someone thinks that you're going to join up with them and get them the sack and blah, blah, blah. I said, just ignore it. I said, don't do what I did. Don't go into a big trash. Just, um, you know, do some more auditions and you've had that experience. Anyway, then about a year later, I saw him when he was first flute of the first clarinet of the um, Philharmonia. And, and he said, oh, thanks for that. I, had, I didn't go into a trash. I just carried on. And I wish I'd spoke to myself and I'd have said not to be such a twat but, <laughs> now I remember yeah. meeting you at the Royal Northern during your trial at the Halley well and I was we... a twat then you see <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we met for lunch aye and uh, I said if you had a good morning you said no it was a bit stressful and I said mm. oh why and you'd been playing Chike for Leonora 3 yeah and you said it was a bit of a problem because I, I didn't have my music so you busked it the whole re- rehearsal yeah I was pretty impressed were you I was. It was a well. What happened was, I, I, I actually was the. I sounded very relaxed and like I, I didn't care. Actually, I'd gone in very early to rehearse it because I thought, you know, I really like the piece and that. And so I'd gone in there to rehearse and I'd taken my part in and I was all practicing away. And then I went for a cup of tea. And what I didn't know is that the music from the previous night was going to be taken away. So when I came back about ten minutes before the rehearsal, suddenly my music wasn't there at all. So I thought I'm only on trial, and I thought, oh God, what am I going to do? And I thought, well. I wonder, you know, how long I could last without the music, because I had practised it, you know. 
So off we went. And, um, you know, I lasted quite a long time until the conductor sort of said, what is going on in the flute? You know, I, I can't understand why you, it's very strange things, you know. And I said, well, I haven't got my music. So he said, well, what the hell, how have you got this far? You know, I said, well, I've just been sort of <laughs> doing my best. Anyway, then they had to stop the rehearsal and uh, the librarian had to go and get my part. And so that wasn't very good if you were on trial, you know. <laughs> so, um, no, that was quite a funny story. It did actually happen. Well, well we were pretty impressed oh, at, at, at the college, I remember, on that, <laughs> on that day. Glad to know it worked then. Now, your sound was so individual, um, full, of, full of resonance, richness, warmth. So tell us about that and your Excalibur flute um, I didn't have that then. I had. A, I think I was playing a Miramatsu then. Um, it's probably because I'm a bit deaf in one ear and I was trying to push the top harmonics because I couldn't hear it properly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I, just, um, I suppose I've been very influenced by... Well, Wib and Jimmy, you know, um, I used to live in the next door road as Wib and I was walking past his house when I was 14 and I heard this incredible sound. I was actually worried that the flute would explode, you know, because it sounded so rich and he sort of thought the windows might blow out and stuff. And I went in there and asked him to teach me, and he said, you know, I don't teach youngsters. But then I kept on going back, and so he said, all right, come. And then we used to have these lessons that would last literally all day. You'd go in at nine o'clock, and you'd still be there at six, and we would be going crazy, and people would come and go. And, um, nothing's changed. Nothing's though, changed. No. Oh, no, it's exactly like what Wib's like now. And, um, yeah, so I think I just got the idea of like playing the flute to the max. Is, is you know, It's quite interesting, actually. If, if you play the flute... Sort of not to the max, or any instrument not to the max. It's not too difficult. It's the fact that, like Jimmy and Wib and a lot of the great players, they're all pushing it absolutely, you know, as far as you can go. And that's kind of what makes it exciting, you know. It's, it's like Nigel Kennedy, I and mean, he's playing right, sort of as dynamically as loud and dynamically as soft, and, you know, they're playing right to the edge of the instrument. I mean, that's what's so good about it. Yeah, you know, we, we have a lot in common there because I also, let's be contemporaries, yeah. also hugely influenced by Wib and Jimmy in, yeah. in those years. I mean, that's they're the people you wanted to listen to mm. and, and who would inspire you. So after after that then, so you did trials. I said we met at various auditions. You were writing, still writing at, at, at that well, time. I used to have stupid ideas though, Claire. Like I, I had this trial for... Um, I mean, I was such a... I had this trial for Ian O North and... Johnny Snowden was in the audition. And because I know Johnny really well, like we're good friends and like, I knew it because he gave me a bit of sight reading and I said to him, well, give me something difficult. So he gave me this absolutely impossible thing, <laughs> which I sort of managed to struggle through. But then I had this idea that, that I was going to treat the trial like a sort of boxing match, like I was going to start playing really badly and then get better through the trial. I, don't, I mean, what was I thinking about? I don't even know what I was thinking about. It's so stupid. But anyway, what happened was I got flu in the middle and actually I got <laughs> stuffed off badly and I got worse and worse. And then Richard Blake got the job. Uh-huh. You know, so. <laughs> what about your compositions? Well, that started because of Richard Blake. And uh, he asked me to write a piece. And we were all being taught avant-garde music, you know, that that's the only way forward. And 12-tone system and everything. And, and I just, he said, you know, why don't I write him a piece? And so I started writing and I was fiddling around with it. And eventually I came up with Out of the Cool. But actually Out of the Cool had a lot of versions before the printed one. It wasn't just like, oh, I did this thing. You know, it took took a long time to probably about six seven years to get it like it is now and then he started playing it and then Nigel Kennedy heard it and he started playing it, and then all these people started playing it and I thought well I might as well write another one so I never really intended to be a composer at all and now I've sort of gone back to the flute I feel like I've written everything that I want to write and now I'm kind of concentrating more on the alto flute 
and I just want to sort of do improvising things and more what I wanted to do when I was young than try and do the classical things. Because, you know, if, if I was booking a session and I wanted someone to turn up and play, you know, top F sharp really quietly at 10 in the morning, I'd get Sam Coles or Mike Cox or, you know, Adam Walker to do it. I, I wouldn't book myself to do it <laughs> because I don't know at 10 o'clock anything could happen, you know. So I'm much better. I'm just trying to concentrate on what I can do. And so that's what I'm doing now. Okay. Now I spent some time sort of revisiting some of your your pieces. Oh so in particular, Home from the Storm, oh which yeah. you wrote for Wib, yeah. which is the most beautiful piece of music. How did that come about? Um, that came about because uh, originally I had an idea that sort of theme came for a film. And then when I started... Because Wib and I had a bit of a sort of trouble because I threw his cooker out the window eventually. <laughs> I, got, I got kind of... I think I was trying to be as eccentric as he is. And I sort of thought, oh, this really impressed him, you know. Instead of which, I got thrown out of his class. And um, But actually, it was a good thing because I think Wib had sort of... You know, we'd gone as... You know, Wib's very good. I think Wib's incredible when you're older. I think I was too young to go to him because the concepts he's talking about are the sort of concepts that when you finish college and you really want to be... Whereas I was going to him, I think, too young, and I think I couldn't... It was a bit of a, you know... But then when I got to know him again many years later, then, yeah, and I did this sort of arrangement for him, and, and uh, then I, then he commissioned a piece, and I wrote that Golden Sunset piece for him, and I've written several pieces for him now. So yeah. we're really so, good mates now, see. He so, never mentions the cooker, nor do I. And where can people get to hear these? I know that the um, the Home from the Storm is on YouTube. I just put everything on YouTube. I, I don't bother with record companies anymore because it's just no one buys CDs. I've just given up trying to earn any money from it, if you see what I mean. I just want people to hear what I've done and then if they like it and they want to play it, then I'm really pleased. Yeah. And I'm more interested actually in tarting up my old pieces than I am in writing anything new. So I've just done, I wrote a big piece for Jimmy Galway in 1993 and I think I've just got it right. Now. Is that the concerto? Yeah. Heaven think, and Earth? Yeah. Well, I wrote Heaven and Earth, but I also wrote um, a thing called... Um, I always have various different titles. At the moment, it's called Ascension. But I, when I wrote it for Jimmy, I, I think I got overawed by the whole Jimmy thing. <clears throat> and it was just too long. It was almost like... I, and I spent... I cared about it so much that I went so overboard on every single thing. It was almost like designing a car and engraving the inside of the pistons. And the thing doesn't work because you've just gone bonkers, you know. So it had all these great themes and stuff, but it all needed to be sort of much more compact and thinned out. So it's the same piece, but just a much better version, you know. So, but these things, you know, they can take a long time to get right, you know. And I'm still, I can never finish anything, which is the trouble. You know, I've always got sort of, oh, if only I just, if only I just put piano instead of mezzo. <laughs> it's like that, because you can never get anything perfect. You can only sort of... I once spoke to this guy, Jerry Damos, who's like with the specials. He said to me that when he's finished a track, he just abandons it to the public. He says it's never finished, but he abandons it. And that's kind of what you have to do. You know, just think, well, yeah. I can't do anything else. You know, that's just the best I can do right now. But probably in six months' time, I'll suddenly have another idea, you know. Anyway, this concerto now is much better than it was then. And, you know, I just hope I don't have any more ideas because otherwise I'm just going to go bonkers. You know? Now, you said, uh, you told me earlier on that you're... You're starting a tour, an Amadeus tour? Yeah, I've, well, I, it started actually because I, I walked past the um, Haynes flute stand and you know what Gareth McLean's like? Yes. And he sort of said, hey Dave, you know, that's, that's my Jimmy voice, but it's a bit similar, you know. <laughs> um, you should try this new alto flute. And he gave me this Amadeus alto flute and I played it and it just went like a rocket. I thought, and the whole Amadeus thing, and I sort of thought, okay, right. I've always wanted to, when I was young, I used to have, 
used to feel like I should be playing the alto, not the ordinary flute, because I find the ordinary flute too compact. It's too sort of... <laughs> Whereas the altos, I can play much more aggressive and beautiful and everything. I find the lower flutes is more my sort of thing. So I'm sort of concentrating more on playing all improvised sessions. What was the question again? I completely forgot. About your Amadeus tour? Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing this Amadeus tour and I want to play with all, like, Aborigines, Africans, Indians, and just improvise and go sort of crazy and, and then I'm going to put it in its box when I'm 70, you know. <laughs> Hopefully no one will persuade me to try and make a comeback, you know. But you're so, starting tonight? I'm starting tonight down at Zoroastrian Centre because of the whole Magic Flute Zoroastrian thing. And um, I got to know them down there and they think I'm a bit nuts, but they I've played there in a couple of times and then this time he said to me oh why don't you do your magic flute thing and I've had this idea for a backing tape it's got all thunder and rain and outdoor sounds and organs and like war samples and everything it's it's pretty mega you know and um so I'm going to do that tonight so I have to see what they make of it down there so you are still composing then oh you've you've caught me with a right hand player um well so I'm still doing things but I'm not you know I, I just feel I've actually this is an old idea but I mean, I've, I've just started it up, ready to. It's not like it's a new idea. He says, "That's really time to get himself off the book." <laughs> but um, um, it's just something I've been fiddling around with for a long time. So, so it's evolving. It's an evolving thing. But I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't write anything else. It's just that at the moment, I'm sort of obsessed with this kind of Amadeus tour and playing with these people. Mm. And you know, I've just been playing. That's quite funny because Nigel Kennedy. I've known him since I was since 1978, but he's never asked me to play a solo on anything until like two months ago and he said oh do you want to come and do this solo on his new record and and uh so i got you know I, he'd done this quite complex version of um summertime with all these chord changes and stuff and i said to him oh nice it's not really you need to get someone like gareth lockeran if you want to do you know if you really want all these chord changes because it's not really my thing like that my thing's much more so and he says well now i want you to do your thing you know so i just did my and it went i played it on bass flute and stuff and it Nigel's a very good producer and he just went as well as it could go so I have to wait and see whether it comes out sounding like that but um, yeah so, so those are the kind of things I'm concentrating on and, um, Where could and people I'm, get to hear you then? Are, are, are the, well, is the tour advertised? or No it's just going to be a sort of pop up thing you know so okay. I'm just trying to get some money together to do it and then and then I'm going to so we just have to look out and, and, look out and, and see wait what's to happening. See, yeah, well, see I want to happening. put it all on the YouTube, you see, so that people can see what's see what I'm up to, you know. Okay, so YouTube is the place. YouTube is the place for me. I don't know. Maybe other people have got better ways of getting out to the public, but I like the fact that you can just talk about someone's music and then just put it, you know, within ten seconds you can hear it. And I'm just trying to use that for the best thing you can. But I mean, how anyone earns any money, I don't know anymore. Hmm. I really don't know. One thing I do think though is I think the colleges and the music schools are teaching everything around the wrong way I mean they've got it's almost like nowadays there's no point in going down a narrow thing and thinking I'm going to do this and then I'm going to it's better to try and be a really good version of yourself in other words and these people that are succeeding like what we were talking about um, who was that guy's name we were talking about a minute ago I've completely forgotten Um, you know the young bloke Jacob Jacob Collier Collier. he's gone out there and done his own videos and he's doing his own style and, and I think that everyone should these colleges should be teaching people and encouraging them to be themselves and be great versions of themselves and put themselves out on the net and hope to get some sort of action like that rather than unless you just want to be if you just want to be a straight orchestral player okay then learn with all the great orchestral players and then there is a sort of path for doing that but if you want to do anything other than that you've got to create your own sort of brand that's what it seems to me Mm. yes and you have to be diverse don't you or if you want to be diverse you've got to 
you've got to do something on the net that creates action that people are interested in and that what creates action is things that are live and things that you're actually doing and you know it's funny how little youtube clip of something can suddenly uh, do you remember the the wheelstone raider i don't actually well no he was a little football guy and he started having an argument on a football pitch with some other bloke but it was just so funny the way he talked and it was all someone had just caught it on camera and it was suddenly it was huge and suddenly the tombstone raiders all over the place and the wheelstone raiders all over the place and um i'm not suggesting that that's the way to do it but you know what i mean it's got to be i think things that are live that are really happening that's what the youtube's great for and that's what yeah. i'm trying to use it for and certainly for students they need to sort of be individual and not little clones of yeah of, and they seem to be teaching people. everyone to be like i even went to the head of the purcell school and i was going look you're teaching people like to be the next jacqueline dupre or to copy her version but i mean that's not what's the point i mean jacqueline dupre is jacqueline dupre they've got to do their own thing you know Mm. create their own music and that's the way I think that's the way forward I think yes I, I thought it was it was it was sort of um, difficult that you you audition people because I auditioned for many years at the Royal Northern at the Academy and you pick people on their creativity yeah. and then for a couple of years you sort of almost dampen down that creativity to get them to play their instrument really well yeah and um, sometimes that creativity you first heard doesn't actually always come back yeah. So yes, I well, that's agree. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 So they have to follow their own follow their own path and, and their keep their path creative. And, and like not not to be too. Rev- I mean, learn from these great players and learn how to actually do it. But then do your own thing. You know, really follow what what it is that you know you want to do, rather than oh, I want to be like so and so. I'm going to do because being like so and so just isn't doesn't work. You know. I mean, for many years I wanted to be like Jimmy. You know, because I absolutely love the guys playing, but. I've, it's only in the last few years I realise it's not about being like someone else. It's about, you know... I so mean, I can be a very good version of myself, but I can't be a very good version of Jimmy because it's just completely different, you know. Yeah. Well, you were also very, very different to you. I mean, if people listen to that, uh, your original CD, is that called Out of the Cool, isn't yeah. it? Uh, it's very much your own individual style. Yeah. Yeah, it's just much more... Mine's much more shamanic and not... And just off the top of the head. And Jimmy's is very much more disciplined and everything's played to the max and perfect and stuff. And I've never, I've just never been like that. I think he said something very interesting to me, actually. He said, you should always follow what you really care about. So in other words, like, I really care about my compositions. Like, if there's a wrong note, it really, or, you know, if I've printed a wrong note or something, that really upsets me. But if I go and do a classical concert and splatter a few all over the place, it doesn't really bother me. So that's obviously not where my heart is. Whereas if Jimmy went and played the Vidor and splattered some notes, it would really upset him. Yes. You know what I mean? Because yes. he really cares about it. Yeah, and he's a perfectionist. He's a perfectionist. And, and you know, but I'm a perfectionist, but not about that. Mm. Would so, you say that that he was your greatest influence, or was it a mixture with him and, and with? Well, yeah, both of them. You know, I've got various sort of people that had a huge influence. Muhammad Ali was one. And, yeah, Jimmy and Whip, and, you know... Yeah, I guess they were kind of like, you know... Another difficult question for you, I mean, would you say you've got a favourite genre of music? Not really, it just depends who's doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. As long as they're, you know, I can, I can, I can 
really get into anything. If someone's doing it at a really high level and they really believe in it and they're doing it honestly, I don't really... To me, it's all... I see everything very differently. I see it all as like we're all creating this one amazing piece from different perspectives. I don't really see separation as much as, you know, he's doing this and he's doing that, you know. And I used to spend my whole time sort of being jealous of other composers and flute players and bitching and sort of... And really sort of... In retrospect, I'm not happy at all with the things I did and said, you know. But I think I didn't understand what... And my understanding now of what's going on is so different. I wouldn't bitch about anyone like that because I don't see it like that, you know. Mm. Even someone that's not particularly good, I see it as my job to help them get better, not my job to go, oh, he's not very good, you know, it's sort of thing. So I don't see anything the same way around at all. What do you say have been your most memorable moment playing the flute? Well, the Chayat 4 thing wasn't... Was <laughs> sticks in the mind. Um, <laughs> For the wrong reasons. <laughs> Well, actually, you know, it's quite funny because I, I've been playing down the homeless centre because they rang up and they heard me play and they said, do you want to come? And they have this tent down there. And these homeless people go in there and they sort of jam along. And the other day I was sort of playing along and I, I we were just basically, we just go in there and play. But I said to this guy, why don't you tell me your life story and I'll accompany you? And he told me this sort of, my God, the things that had happened to him, it was absolutely tragic, you know. So that was pretty memorable. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and then he sort of said, and we did this sort of improvisation as he was talking and stuff. And he said, actually, that made a big difference. You know, he sort of felt very... He let all this stuff out that he'd never told anyone else. So that was kind of a memorable moment. But there isn't one that sort of sticks out that I can... Well, also, you know, you know recording for Nigel's pretty memorable as well. So where, where can we hear that, uh, the new recording you've just done for Nigel? Well, I think it's coming out and it's on his Gershwin recording, but I don't want to say it's on it because you never know with these things. You know, someone else will turn up with a nose flute and they'll something yeah. like that. You know, I've... So you might be on the cutting floor. I might be on the cutting floor. I, don't, I, don't, I never assume anything till it's there. But it was, I can't play any better than that. So if it's on the record, I can't play any better than that. What's your hardest flute piece you ever played? Uh, Chandelinos. Mm-hmm. But I would never attempt it again. <laughs> it was like a, it was a, I just wouldn't attempt. Actually, I really like it. It's a great piece. It's a fantastic piece. Very but, exciting. But um, I'm more trying to do my own stuff on the flute now that I could you know so I wouldn't I wouldn't play any classical pieces now because I just I don't think I just think there are much better players you know like the other day Sam Coles was playing through this concerto and I listened to him and I think oh god Sam I, you know when I hear you play I just think oh god I couldn't I just I can't even <laughs> think that fast what you're doing you know so I'm very happy to sort of just listen to other players and enjoy the playing not not sort of you know mm-hmm. so should we move a little bit away then from from music things mm. um, and what about what's your favourite country From what point of view? In terms of visiting, uh, culture, food, people, maybe music. Well, I do like New York, mm-hmm. but then you can't really even say that's America, can you? You know, I just I, I really like New York. I really like hot places, to be honest. I've got I'm a sort of hot. You know, I really like Greece and places like yeah, that. Yeah, me too. I don't like the cold weather. Not I don't this like cold, the cold weather. weather. But having said that, I've got loads of great friends in Scotland, and when I go up there, I feel really happy, sort of being up there too. So. Oh, I don't know. What about favourite food? Indian. Mm-hmm. And if you could, if you were having a dinner party and you could invite four people for the music world, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a dinner party. It could be a drinks party. It could be a could be a rave up. <laughs> four people, dead or alive. 
what what would I be trying to do? Have a good party? Yeah. Well, you'd have to get Mozart, wouldn't you? You'd have to get him drunk. Um, I don't know who else. Um, I would ask Jimmy and Wib, but they're not dead yet. <laughs> well, they don't have to be dead. It could be anyone. Well, dead or alive. I've definitely <laughs> asked those two, otherwise they'd be upset. And then I'd probably ask Nigel for a, a little bit of punk in the mix, you know. <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Well, it's it's great, great to see you. Yeah, thanks very much. Talking Flutes is a Trevor James Flute podcast production. More information can be found at trevorjamesflutes.com.